Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thanks for your support on Patreon. Ed Bollinger. Ed was the first soldier through the gates of Riga during that successful, triumphant siege of Riga for the Swedish king. Well done, Ed. What a glittering start to a 17th century soldiering career. I'm sure you'll do very well. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. But more on that later on in the show. For now, let's get into episode 48 of the Thirty Years' War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 48 of the Thirty Years' War. Last time, we wrapped up our examination of the Holy Roman Empire just before the Swedish storm arrived. More specifically, we looked at the road to Regensburg, and we saw how that Regensburg meeting during the summer of 1630 created more problems than it actually solved. This was especially disconcerting for those that looked to Sweden as the next instigator of conflict in the empire, but the truth was that Sweden's issues with the Holy Roman Emperor, and with Albrecht of Wallenstein in particular, went back further than 1630. In this episode then, oh boy, we're tasked with setting the scene. What was the King of Sweden up to from 1625, and how important to his later intervention was that unending war he waged against his Polish cousin? What kind of diplomatic acrobatics freed him from that Polish war, and what kind of beef did he have with Wallenstein and why? These are all questions I'm looking forward to unwrapping, so I hope you're sitting comfortably as we're about to drop some fascinating knowledge on you guys. Our story will take us from France to Russia to Constantinople to The Hague, so let's get down to it as I take you back to 1625. In 1625, King Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden made a choice. Rather than intervene in Germany as part of a coalition of powers which included Denmark, England and the Dutch, Gustavus would return to the task of fighting his cousin, the King of Poland, in the East. The decision was an understandable one, considering the bitter history between Gustavus and Sigismund III. It was impossible to intervene in Germany so long as the Polish threat loomed, otherwise the Poles would strike Sweden in the back, just as the Swedes became entangled in the Holy Roman Empire. Gustavus Adolphus had fought a two-front war before. Indeed, he had ascended to the throne of Sweden, while his country was at war with Denmark, Poland and Russia, all at the same time. And it's safe to say that by 1625, he did not want a repeat of that experience again. For nearly 30 years since Sigismund Vasa had sailed back to Poland in 1598, Sweden had fought against its neighbours, in a string of stop-start conflicts, where first its very survival, 
and then the opportunities for expansion were at stake. Gustavus's first truly incredible triumph came in 1621, when he landed an army in Lithuania that was 25,000 men strong, larger than any army Sweden had fielded before. The army had to be large, because its target was one of the sparkling jewels of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the port city of Riga. Hosting over 30,000 citizens, Riga was three times the size of Stockholm, the capital of Sweden, and it contained a sophisticated, prosperous commercial infrastructure which enabled the city to tap into the fruits of the Baltic Sea. The Polish army, thousands of miles away and defending against the full might of the Turks, could provide no answer for this daring Swedish coup. It could not have been known at the time, but the seizure of Riga was only the beginning. From here, the King of Sweden began a campaign which netted him several other lucrative Baltic ports, and enabled Sweden, by virtue of these conquests, to take the war more effectively to the Poles. The result was even more success. By 1625, not content with merely renewing the war with Poland, Gustavus wished to ferment a coalition against her. Finding much of Europe occupied with the Habsburgs, and noting Habsburg support for the Poles at the same time, Gustavus attempted to cast his war with Poland as merely an offshoot of the war that was then ongoing against the Habsburg Emperor. He was in regular contact with the Ottomans, traditional enemies of the Poles, and Gustavus recognised the importance of casting his dynastic Vasa conflict with Sigismund III in such a way as to invite foreign aid. The message he sent out was relatively simple. By fighting the Poles, Sweden was weakening a key ally of the Habsburgs, and thus it made sense for the enemies of the Habsburgs to support him in this fight. Simple though the message was, Gustavus was to express it consistently throughout his reign. In the course of his campaigns against Poland, he sought aid from France, England, the Dutch, the Ottomans, and even the old enemies in Denmark and Russia. Furthermore, while Gustavus accepted that by weakening Poland, one would weaken the Habsburgs, he also believed that the reverse was true, and that by undermining the Holy Roman Emperor, Poland would be disadvantaged. To put these beliefs in perspective, the King of Poland, Sigismund III, was the brother-in-law of Emperor Ferdinand. This only reinforced the dynastic lens through which Gustavus viewed his Polish war. The Jesuit Catholic background of Emperor Ferdinand and King Sigismund added further weight to the picture. From an early stage then, Gustavus's perspective on Europe had been shaped by the policies of his relatives and the friends which his enemies made. In February 1626, Gustavus vocalised his perspective on the interconnected state of affairs in Europe in a letter written to the Russian Tsar. The King of Sweden said, The Roman Kaiser, helped by the kings of Spain and Poland, has subjected nearly all the appanage princes of Germany, eradicated their evangelical Christian religion, and deprived them of lands and people, making himself supreme ruler over all Germany. After this, the Roman Kaiser wants to help the King of Spain to conquer the states of Holland and the Netherlands, and also wants to help the King of Poland to become ruler of the Swedish and Russian states. They have great hopes of accomplishing this aim, and many are already calling Vladislav, that is, the son of Sigismund III, the King of Poland, emperor of all the northern countries. The Roman Kaiser and the kings of Spain and Poland think that they have now overcome all the rulers of Christendom, but the King of France, together with the great city of Venice and the Duke of Savoy, have formed a coalition against the above-mentioned powers, and in particular against the King of Spain, 
and have raised up a great force against him in Italy. The King of England too, along with the rulers of the Netherlandish states, have formed an alliance against the Kaiser and the King of Spain, and have sent to us the great King Gustavus Adolphus, and to the King of Denmark, to ask us to join them in opposing the Roman Kaiser and his advisers. To this end, the Danish King has gone to war against the Kaiser, and now stands with the great army opposing him within Germany, having on his side many of the German appanage princes, who all support him, and in order that the Polish king may not go to the aid of the Kaiser, we have now entered the land of Lithuania, so that he cannot help the Roman Kaiser. But the Kaiser and his advisers will be everywhere ousted, and will not be able to realise the wicked designs which they have formed against all Christian states. This letter reads like a statement of Swedish policy, but it also contained the theme of Russo-Swedish correspondence which was maintained to the end. The war against Poland was not just a war in the name of Swedish interests, it was also a war directed against this Roman Kaiser, because by attacking the Polish king, the latter could not provide any aid to the former. The religious undertones of the correspondence are also brought out. The Catholic Emperor and Polish King intend to destroy the Evangelical or Protestant faith, but they also intend to crush the Greek faith and persecute all those who hold to it. The Russian Tsar, as the protector of Orthodox Christians, must not allow this to happen. Judging merely from his correspondence in the late 1620s, it was never more apparent that the King of Sweden had chosen his side. His decision to intervene in Germany wasn't taken off the cuff in summer 1630, but was the result of several years of watching. Behind his dynastic foe, the King of Poland, stood that terror of Germany, the sectarian, intolerant Catholic Emperor, and you could not destroy one without defeating the other. The themes of religious solidarity and strategic interest colour Swedish policy and demonstrate the interconnected nature of European affairs at this phase of the Thirty Years' War. As the Emperor's victories piled up, these themes became more urgent. Gustavus broached the subject of a coalition of anti-Hausberg forces several times, and he urged the Tsar to defend himself as other rulers are defending themselves, to act against the King of Poland and prevent him from helping the Kaiser. Then he, the Emperor, will forget to act against those rulers who stand by their beliefs, and will give up his wicked designs against our Christian, Evangelical and Greek faiths. The danger which the Emperor posed to all of Christendom was one thing, but the ability of that same Emperor to endanger Sweden during its war with Poland by directly aiding the Polish King was quite another. Emperor Ferdinand, according to Gustavus, was effectively keeping the King of Poland propped up, and the Swedish King even claimed that he could have marched unhindered through all Poland with his army. Gustavus said in a letter to the Tsar in 1629 that he had not been able to accomplish this comprehensive defeat of his Polish cousin because of the machinations of the Habsburgs in Poland. Above all, Gustavus emphasised the Emperor's formidable and limitless manpower supply, which in great strength drew near and laid siege to the town of Stralsund. This forced Sweden, as we may recall, to divert its forces from Poland to meet the threat. The Emperor was thus identified as the source of all woes, and as the true enemy of Sweden and of Russia. It was the Habsburg brand of Jesuit Catholic expansion which threatened Swedish and Russian interests far more seriously than Poland could possibly have done alone. As Gustavus continued, The Pope! The Roman Kaiser and the whole House of Austria 
strive only to become masters of the whole world, and they are very close to succeeding in this. It is certainly known to your majesty that the Roman Kaiser and the Papists have brought under their rule most of the evangelical princes in Germany. Once the Kaiser and the Popish conspirators overcome Sweden, they will start to try and force the Russian people into submission and extirpate the ancient Greek faith. The notion that behind King Sigismund III of Poland stood Emperor Ferdinand was one accepted not only by the Swedes and the Russians, it was also expanded upon by the French. Cardinal Richelieu viewed Russia as the useful power far in the distance which would surround the Poles and thereby hamper the strategic unity of the Habsburgs. As a letter from King Louis XIII of France to Tsar Michael put it, Although our realms are far apart and divided from each other by different states with different measures and languages, we wish to maintain our firm cordial friendship and love and true concord and reference, that is, diplomatic relations, with your majesty for the good and advancement of both our crowns and that a treaty may be made to the benefit of us both. Interestingly, while the Swedes had worked to find common ground with the Russians in their religious differences, which put them at odds with the Catholic Habsburgs and Poles, the most Christian Catholic king of France would obviously have to find a different approach. With the religious commonality absent, or at least the common fear of Catholicism absent between the Russians and the French, it would be necessary to understate the Catholic aspect of France and emphasise instead something which Russian and France did have in common the absolute power of their sovereigns. The French obey their king just as the Russians obey and do honour to their czar. It certainly helped that it was in the strategic interests of the Russians to see matters the French way. There was great value to be had in allying with the most anti-Hasburg power of them all. The czar's reply to Louis XIII captured this mood in one powerful sentence. Our royal persons and powers, when allied, would hold the whole world in awe. French and Swedish approaches to Russia were very much in tune with the presentation of Europe as divided into two distinct camps. With the King of Poland a firm ally of the Emperor, it was impossible to separate either Poland from the Habsburgs or the war with Poland from the war in Germany. This is an important point to appreciate, since it reminds us how interconnected contemporaries of the Thirty Years' War believed their affairs to be. The ambassador which France had sent to Russia, de Hayes de Cormainen, furthered these views by underlining the critical points ad nauseum. His correspondence forms a vital if underrated part of the Thirty Years' War narrative, and it's definitely worth examining. King Louis is at enmity with the Kaiser and with the King of Spain, and he is at enmity with the King of Poland because that monarch is helping the Roman Kaiser, King Louis' foe and they act in concert with Sigismund, the Polish king, and give him no little aid. And this, they, the French, know for certain that the Roman Kaiser is one with the Polish king. They are friends. The Kaiser's daughter is to marry the heir to the Polish throne, and they help one another. And so, let the Tsar's majesty, in friendship and amity with his, the ambassador's, sovereign king Louis, stand together with him against their common enemies. Such appeals were made in the context of the late 1620s, when the war in North Italy had begun, and the Habsburgs were fighting the Dutch and the Danes as well. The power of the Habsburgs was spreading, and it was therefore essential that all nations close ranks against them. 
The Poles, who have allied themselves with the House of Austria and have long been hostile to the French king, are in fear lest the Grand Duke, that is, the Tsar, conclude this alliance. Just as the Swedish king had done, here the French ambassador makes it plain that his sovereign intends to attack the Holy Roman Emperor in the future. If the Russians were to ally with France and attack the Poles, they would in fact be attacking the Habsburgs. No means to undermine the Habsburgs could be off limits in this struggle. Thus we see Ambassador de Hayes pointing to Spanish trade with Persia, referred to as the Orient. These incomes for Spanish coffers went straight into the practice of funding the nefarious wider schemes of the Habsburgs. If one was to undercut this trade route to Persia, then the Habsburgs and thereby the Poles would also be affected. But how to do it? Well, the French ambassador in Russia, de Hayes, believed that a land route through Russia towards Persia was the answer. It is necessary to check and prevent the Austrian princes from profiting by trade with the Orient, for, as we have pointed out, they used the profits obtained from this source in the past year to hire many soldiers whom they sent to help the Polish king against the king of Sweden, and if the Russian sovereign does not stop them from engaging in this trade, they will go on helping the Polish king. And it would be better if the Russian sovereign were to gain by this trade, rather than that his enemies should be enriched by it. This window into Franco-Russian diplomacy, and even our peek into Swedish-Russian diplomacy, provides as clear an example as is available of that old truism of realpolitik, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Drawn together due to the need for mutual defence against a common Habsburg enemy, both Sweden and France could gain much from an alliance with the Russian Tsar, just as they had gained much by allying with one another. Indeed, this was also true of the Franco-Dutch relationship, where the French supported the Netherlands in its conflict with Spain, on the understanding that this would weaken the Spanish Habsburgs, which would weaken the Austrian Habsburgs as a result. Not satisfied merely with a Russian alliance, the French envisioned a far-reaching coalition of eastern states, including the Turks, the Tartars and Transylvania, to be weighed against Poland and the Habsburgs. Furthermore, the French relied upon Transylvanian ambassadors in Moscow and Dutch ambassadors in Constantinople to bring such a coalition about. By 1626, the Poles had intercepted several letters from Sweden, which argued for just such a coalition. As Bethlen Gabor, the Prince of Transylvania, and Eternal Thorn in the side of the Habsburgs, put it, And since these great sovereigns, the Tsar's Majesty, and the Swedish King, and their sovereign Bethlen Gabor, are united and mean to act together against their enemies, and the Turkish Sultan Murad intends also, for his part, to oppose those enemies, nobody will be able to withstand these great forces. So as to secure and establish this beforehand, let good alliances be maintained. The enemies of these forces are the King of Spain, the Roman Kaiser, and the King of Poland, so as to stand against them and take revenge for their enmity. These examples demonstrate that the Tsar was not merely a pawn in a Swedish or French game, but that he was an accepted member of a unofficial or official anti-Hausberg coalition, and that so long as he was hostile towards Poland, he could be no other. The 1618 Truce of Dulino had ended the Russo-Polish War, which had been characterised by the effective collapse of the Russian state, the occupation of Moscow by a Polish army, and the nomination of King Sigismund's son, who we met earlier, Vladislav, as the Tsar. 
the truce had inflated the size of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth to its greatest extent, but it also left a vengeful Tsar to the Commonwealth's east, at a time when the Polish wars with Sweden seemed unending. It was only logical for the dynastic and strategic enemies of Poland to cooperate. Indeed, this cooperation was essential if any reduction in Polish power was to be accomplished. That this proved a difficult task was blamed on the succour which Sigismund III received from Emperor Ferdinand, but how important or considerable was the Habsburg aid to Poland? Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We're going to look at that in a bit, but before we do, I want to remind you of something very exciting. Are you enjoying this narrative into the Thirty Years' War? Would you like another narrative that is somewhat different but also based during this period? Well, if so, Matchlock and the Embassy is the story for you. Matchlock and the Embassy is the first instalment of a historical fiction series set during the Thirty Years' War. It begins in 1622, and we follow the story of Matthew Locke as he tries to find out why on earth his parents were brutally murdered. This book has been out for about 90 days by the time you're listening to this, and in that time we've sold over 450 copies, and I am really, really happy with that, because I kind of came out of nowhere, and basically because of you guys, we've done so well so far. It continues to sell very consistently every day right into December, and I really can't wait to release the second book. If you'd like to check Matchlock out for yourself, make sure you click on the link in the description below. But if you'd like to get it for free and get all future Matchlock books as well as other non-fiction books, you can sign up for a fiver a month on Patreon. And by so doing, every future ebook that I ever release will be sent to you. Thanks to the advancements of modern technology, you'll be able to read this downloaded ebook on your Kindle app or wherever else you like to read your ebooks. Matchlock and the Embassy awaits. By signing up at the $5 level, you'll not only get Matchlock, of course, you'll also get an hour of extra content every month, and you will, of course, get, well, a whole load, 40 plus hours of back catalogue content that you won't get anywhere else. So, 
As soon as you sign up, expect to be pretty much occupied in terms of audio listening content. That, of course, is my intention, but there's even more quality content to come in the new year. We're going to be doing something called Britain Goes to War, which we have done before, but it's a kind of refresher of that series. And we're starting in 1859 for Palmerston's last administration. We're going to be looking at such events as British relations with the United States during the Civil War, the Polish uprising in 1863, and of course, the Schleswig-Holstein incident, which led in turn to basically a war between all of Germany and poor little Denmark. But Bismarck was involved, and if you've listened to Bismarck Rise, I'm sure you'll know all about that. But I can't wait to cover that conflict from the British point of view, and I can't wait for you to join me. So patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails is where you can go to make all that happen. Thanks for your patience, history friends. Now let's get back to the show where Gustavus Adolphus tries to justify his intervention in the war in 1630. When presenting his justification for intervention in Germany in summer 1630, Gustavus Adolphus underlined as a casus belli the consistent provision of soldiers, resources and other aid which Albrecht of Wallenstein had granted to Poland. It is worth taking a moment to examine Wallenstein's behaviour in this regard. Was Gustavus justified in his resentment? We have learned that Wallenstein feared the untimely intervention of the Swedish king in Germany, and he used the forces at his disposal to bolster the Polish king's resolve, thereby prolonging the war with Sweden and keeping Gustavus distracted in time for a peace with Denmark to be formed. This policy of providing aid to the Poles made good strategic sense, but Wallenstein's foresight was fatally undermined with the outbreak of the Mantuan War and the Emperor's decision to become entangled in that conflict just as Wallenstein had previously feared. Yet, Gustavus's ability to profit from the Emperor's misfortune shouldn't detract from the fact that he had been greatly inconvenienced by Wallenstein's previous policy. Indeed, Gustavus's expression of offence at Wallenstein's behaviour was not rhetorical hot air. Gustavus had long feared and loathed the spectacle of closer Polish-Habsburg relations, and Wallenstein's timely interventions in the Polish-Swedish War only confirmed these impressions. The practical help which Wallenstein provided was considerable, and is most apparent in the Generalissimo's decision to lend one of his most skilled subordinates, Hans Georg von Arnhem, to the Polish king, along with 8,000 men under his command. This contingent made its presence felt during the twilight phase of the Polish-Swedish War in May 1629, when Arnhem was sent to the Vistula Delta. Arnhem's mission was an important one, in the name of the Habsburgs, and to help the Polish king, he was to relieve the pressure on the city of Danzig, the most important city in Poland, and one of Poland's few remaining outlets to the Baltic at this stage. He was to be joined by Sigismund's 35,000 men, but Arnhem soon discovered that his presence was not as welcome in Poland as had been hoped. Sigismund had asked for way more men, and Arnhem had only travelled to Danzig reluctantly after Wallenstein had commanded it. The Poles did not provide Arnhem with sufficient provisions, and combined with the difficult, marshy conditions, disease and starvation ripped through his ranks. Still, Arnhem played an important role in the Battle of Honigfeld in late June 1629. At that battle, Gustavus faced a close call and was nearly captured by the superior Polish cavalry. The Swedish king lost less than 1,000 men to the Polish imperial 300 during that battle, 
but both sides were now exhausted. Much of Gustavus's army had been besieging Danzig, but with this loss and the low morale of his troops, not to mention the terminal war fatigue which had set in on both sides, the idea of a Polish-Swedish truce began to seem more appealing. And even while the King of Sweden couldn't take Danzig, or Gdansk as it's often called, he still controlled a great portion of the Vistula plains around the city. Sigismund's nobles were themselves tired of the war, and recriminations between the Poles and Arnhem's men were already doing the rounds. Arnhem's claim that the Poles had fired on his men during the battle, and expressed his disgust at the Polish king's failed promises, which had forced his men to eat grass during their chronic starvation. The campaign represented the most comprehensive attempt at Habsburg-Polish cooperation yet, but it was a diplomatic failure, and it left a bad taste in Arnhem's mouth, who blamed King Sigismund for the lacklustre results. Still, it is significant that Gustavus Adolphus did not forget the episode. On the contrary, it was burned into his consciousness as a prime example of the scheming Habsburgs and their quest to undermine him in his Polish war. It can therefore be argued that Gustavus did have a legitimate gripe with Wallenstein and his master, since even before the Battle of Honigfeld in June 1629, Wallenstein had sent a trickle of soldiers into Poland to reinforce important towns and bolster depleted Polish divisions. These tactics were all part of Wallenstein's scheme to delay Swedish intervention into Germany by prolonging the Polish-Swedish war, and the strategy evidently found the Emperor's blessing. Gustavus's rebuttal before the walls of Danzig was all the proof that the Swedish king needed. In the years past, the Habsburgs had merely been guilty by association. After the final phase of his war with the Poles, though, Gustavus saw his fears confirmed. Habsburg support for the Poles didn't signal merely the close relationship of these two powers, it also demonstrated that the Habsburgs were inherently hostile to Swedish interests. Arnhem's adventure, much like the Siege of Stralsund, the Baltic design, and the aggrandizement of the Catholic Emperor, were preemptive steps taken towards a conflict with Sweden which Gustavus Adolphus would have to be ready for. The only way he could truly prepare for this conflict and meet the Emperor's challenge directly was by ending his struggle with the Poles. After several years emphasising the hostility between Poland and Sweden and the danger which King Sigismund posed to both of their states, one might have expected that the Swedish explanation of their decision to make peace with Poland would be a hard sell in Moscow. As if in anticipation of this difficulty, Sweden sent an envoy to Russia tasked specifically with explaining its position with regard to the Truce of Altmark, signed in September 1629. Thanks to the theme of Polish-Habsburg unity, though, Gustavus was able to argue that he had already been fighting against their common enemy, and that he would continue to do so. The only difference was the face which he confronted on the battlefield. Both Poland and the Emperor were sides of the same militant Catholic coin. By fighting the Habsburgs, Gustavus was in fact weakening the Poles. It was to be expected that Poland would send aid to support the Habsburgs, but Gustavus insisted that peace with Poland meant that Sweden could invade the Holy Roman Empire and combat the Habsburg problem directly. Thereafter, the emperor would be fatally weakened, and the bonds which tied him to the Polish king would be dangerously frayed. Cardinal Richelieu couldn't afford to send French soldiers against Poland in support of the Swedish king, but he could provide assistance in the diplomatic sphere instead. 
a well-timed, skillful mediation mission to the East could capitalise on the war weariness of both Sweden and Poland and guarantee the secession of hostilities between both parties while granting Sweden the majority of her gains in the Baltic. Thereafter, Sweden would be free to intervene in Germany at last, the Habsburgs would be forced to withdraw from the Mantuan War, and the Franco-Swedish partnership would threaten the Habsburgs at both ends. Yet, what is often forgotten about the French mediation of the Swedish-Polish War is that it was by no means straightforward. This was demonstrated by Richelieu's decision to send not one diplomat to the east, but two. The first, Hercule Gerard, Baron Charnace, would be sent to meet with the Swedes and the Poles in Pomerania and Warsaw, respectively. The second, the aforementioned de Hayes, was sent to Moscow. The mission of these two French agents would include no shortage of manipulation and misinformation, for they were tasked with opening a new front in Germany and ushering in a new phase of the Thirty Years' War. As if reflecting the interconnected nature of the early 17th century's related conflicts, it was impossible for the French to proceed without first covering all angles. If they were to begin their war in the West, then peace in the East would have to be achieved. This was to prove a task far more complicated and multi-layered than Richelieu could have anticipated. In the next episode, because I think I've dropped enough diplomatic bombs on you today already, we delve into these complicated diplomatic approaches. Two cases above all will draw our attention. The first being the French efforts to bring peace between Poland and Sweden, and the second being the Swedish efforts to persuade Russia that they should make war on Poland, so that Gustavus Adolphus would be free from fear of attack in his flank. Such forgotten but fascinating aspects of the Thirty Years' War demonstrate all too clearly just how international this conflict had become by 1630, but they also provide us with some juicy diplomatic history to cover, so I hope you'll join me for it. Until next time, history friends, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 48 of the 30 Years' War. Thanks so much for listening to and supporting this show. Make sure you check out Matchlock if you like historical fiction, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 